Oh Lord, we're so grateful to read this passage of Scripture. Lord, we're so in awe of who your Son is and what He did for us and how He was involved in creation and how He was involved in redemption. And Lord, how He is involved in the church. And Lord, I pray that today as we meet together as a church family, Lord, that you would indeed be magnified in this church. Lord, we can't speak for all the other churches that are here in Moore or around the world, but Lord, we can make sure that we are a church that is indeed magnifying you. And I pray, Lord, you would guide us and give us wisdom and help us, Lord, to be willing to do the things necessary so that you are indeed high and lifted up here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. I pray, Lord, you'd uh, bless this message. Again, as it's been prayed, hide me behind the cross, Lord. I don't want people to focus so much on the messenger. I really want people to focus on the message, though. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us all, Lord, to have the, the spirit that Mary had when she was approached by the angel, when she said, be it unto me according to thy word. Lord, help us all to say, Lord, I want to do what your word says. Pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, in this series, Magnify the Lord, we have been learning how to magnify the Lord in many different areas of our lives, haven't we? We've been learning to magnify the Lord again in our hearts, in our homes. We've been learning how we can magnify the Lord in our marriages in our, the, our use of time, and our use of finances. Last week we talked about how we could magnify the Lord in our trials. And now we're going to look at how we can magnify the Lord in our church. Now Paul in his letter to the church at Colossae explained to them the importance of doing just what I said, magnifying the Lord in the church. Verse number 18, he says at the end of that verse, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Uh, for those who have never seen one of our order of services, uh, I have usually two or three in my Bible at all times, just in case I leave one somewhere. Uh, I've been known to do that. But at the bottom it says that in all things he might have the preeminence. And on the other side it says the exact same thing for both services, because that's really what we want. We want God to be uh, the one who is emphasized, not us, uh, not what we can offer, but what he can do in our lives. And now, preeminence, that has been defined. The Greek word for preeminence is uh, defined as to be first in rank or in influence. That is, that he might be first in rank, dignity, honor, and power. So the question here is have you give Jesus given Jesus preeminence in your life? Now, we're talking about the church, but in order for Jesus to have the preeminence in the church, it's only going to happen as if each and every one of us individually are allowing the Lord to be preeminent in our individual lives. Um, we can't just say, well, I hope everybody else makes the Lord preeminent in their lives, whereas for me, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, I read this this week, and it, it uh, fit here, and so I wanted to read this. This is from uh, John Phillips. He's a, he's a great commentator that I really, really appreciate. Um, he asked the question here, Have you given Jesus place, prominence, 
or preeminence. Because there's a difference between the three. He said, um, some people give Him place. They have opened their hearts to Him and have received Him as Savior. Have you done that? I hope that the answer is yes. And if it is no, I hope that you'll not be able to leave with that same answer. Uh, I hope that you will give Him place in your life. Well, you'll uh, trust Him as your Savior. But then other people go further and give Him prominence. They order their lives so as to give Him general control, but they have reservations about going all of the way. Some doors are still barred to Him. In some areas, they still reserve the right to do as they please. There are some areas in their life that are off-limits to you, Lord, because that's mine. You can't have that area. You can't have my entertainment. You can't have this or that. You can't have it. Uh, you can have my soul. You can forgive me of my sins. You can take me to heaven someday when I die, but, but don't get carried away, Lord, because <laughs> uh, there are some areas in which I still want to have control over. Well, then there are a few people who give him preeminence. You see, in the, with these people, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords over all that they have and all that they are. So let me ask you again. Um, have you given Jesus place, prominence, or preeminence? And I want to remind us what Jesus deserves to have and wants to have in each of our individual lives. In verse number 18, that in all things, including my life and yours, he might have the preeminence. In recent years, I was reading about a head coach of a football team who divorced his wife of 26 years when he left coaching a college team to become the head coach of in the National Football League. So he was a he was a college coach, and then he got sort of promoted to the NFL. And when he got promoted, he uh, divorced his wife of 26 years. And here's what he said. He said he needed a wife while coaching on the college level for social functions and to show families that he would be looking out for their sons. But in pro football, however, she was an unnecessary uh, thing and a distraction to winning. He said winning football was his number one priority and his two sons were second priority. How tragic. But in contrast to this, Mr. Tom Landry, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said this, the thrill of knowing Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. I think God has put me in a very special place and he expects me to use it to His glory in everything that I do. Whether coaching football or talking to the press, I'm always a Christian. Christ is first, family is second, and football is third. Here's a man who more closely allowed the Lord to be preeminent in his life versus the other a coach who uh, used his wife just as a uh, basically as a trophy wife. You know, when Jesus is preeminent, it's going to affect everything in our lives. Also, if He's preeminent in our church, it's going to impact how we do church. 
So we know that the Lord Jesus is to be magnified and preeminent in the church, but how can we practically make this happen? Well, I'm glad I asked the question because I'm going to answer the question. (laughs) And so this morning I want to go through a biblical checklist to see how we are doing at magnifying the Lord here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. All right, first of all, to magnify the Lord in our church, number one, we need to remember who the church belongs to. Verse number 18, Paul said this, and he, talking about Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. See, Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians 1 and verse 22, Paul talks to the Ephesians about it too, and he says this, and hath put all things under his Jesus' feet gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Later in Ephesians, he says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So according to these passages, the church does not belong to me. Even though when I'm out in the community and they say, so where, what church is yours? Oh, my church is Cornerstone Baptist Church. It's not my church. This church also doesn't even belong to us. Though you might say, well, this is our church. Uh, and that's okay to say. But the reality is, it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was Him who gave His life for this church. I didn't give my life for this church. You didn't give your, you didn't die on the cross for this church. Jesus did. Now, this is extremely significant for us to understand because look, if the church indeed belongs to him and it does, then he alone has the right to give direction for how his church is to operate and to run. He has the right to dictate the what, the who, the why, and the how of every church. See, he is the head. We are the body. He gets to call the shots, not us. Now, I know as my body gets older, my head tells different body parts to do something, and sometimes those body parts are a little rebellious, a little stubborn. Like when it's time to run really fast, my mind still thinks I'm 12. But my body says, excuse me, you're not 12 anymore. Uh, so I'm not going to be able to run as fast or as long as you used to be able to. Um, I have a uh, father-son basketball game coming up this Thursday, and uh, I've been talking smack to my boys. But uh, secretly, I'm terrified as to that night. I am dreading it. I'm praying for the rapture of the church to happen uh, prior to Thursday evening. I just don't know if my heart and lungs can take it. And I, if I do survive Thursday, I'm really not looking forward to Friday and Saturday. Because, and if you see me next Sunday kind of go like this, you'll know why. You know, the head wants to tell body parts to do things. Sometimes the body parts don't cooperate. And, uh, look, he's the one that this church belongs to and he gets to call the shots. And it's our job then to not say, Lord, we have a better idea. 
no, we don't have a better idea because he is the head of the church. The church belongs to him. And if we're going to magnify the Lord here at Cornerstone Baptist Church, we better remember who the church belongs to. Number two, we also better remain committed to doctrinal purity. I'm going to invite you, if you're able to, to turn over to Revelation chapter number two. We're going to look at a few of these uh, passages here in the Revelation two and three here. Most of us know that uh, chapters two and three are the record of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to uh, the seven churches there in Asia. And in these letters, we learn a lot about what Jesus values in a church. And the things that he points out and corrects. And uh, last year, we went through a series called Marks of a Healthy Church. And we uh, went through each of these in, in depth. Uh, well, not as in depth as we could have. But we spent a message on each of these churches and talking about things that Jesus highlighted and, and commended and praised, and then things that He rebuked and corrected. And we tried to learn those lessons. Well, um, I want to kind of review. This will be a little bit of review for those who were in that series, but for those who are not, it'll be somewhat new material. But I want to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 here. And unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the, se the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And then look in verse number 6, But this thou hast, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, not the Nickelodeons, just so you're wondering, um, which also I hate. So here this church at Ephesus uh, they had some people in their church that was wrong. Uh, they were teaching wrong doctrine. And uh, this church was found faithful in uh, maintaining doctrinal purity. Well, let's look in, uh, in verse 13 here. Uh, we're going to go down to the church at Pergamos. Uh, verse 12 says, um, To Pergamos write these things. Well, verse 13, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is and has not denied my faith. Even in those days where, wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And let's keep reading here. Verse 14, I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, there it is again, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here to the Ephesians, he commends them for their stance on doctrinal truth. To the, Pergam to the church at Pergamos, he rebukes them for their failure to remain for doctrinal purity. <coughs> and then let's look at verse number 20. This is uh, the church at Thyatira. Verse 20, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest, sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth, calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So here now he rebukes the church at Thyatira for allowing someone in their church 
a female to be teaching, and it wasn't just that she was teaching, but that she was teaching false doctrine, and uh, they didn't do anything about it, and they allowed this to happen. Well, let's keep re- let's go on to chapter three, verse ten. Chapter three and verse number ten. <coughs> this is the church at Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Well, verse number 10, he says to them, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So there they were faithful to keep the word of his patience. They were they remained committed to doctrinal purity. And so here we find in these seven letters a real emphasis on doctrinal truth. So look, Jesus cares about faithfulness to His Word and to the doctrinal truths that are therein. These, of course, include the big ones, like the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Uh, that, that's in the Word of God, and those are the big ones. Um, the fact that uh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and the full atonement of the cross of Calvary. And then the, the third day, the, the fact that Jesus literally bodily rose from the grave the third day. These are big doctrines. We need to be faithful to those. But it also includes being committed to doctrinal purity and what would some would consider lesser doctrines. Ones that m- many people throw out, throw out the window because they deem them to be non-essential doctrines. And before we get into some of these, can I ask you a question? If, if something is mentioned in God's holy word, who are we to label it non-essential? Who are we to say, okay, well, this one doesn't really matter. Let's just throw that out because it's, it's not one of the big ones. But you know, churches all across this land are doing that. They're saying this one doesn't matter anymore because it's not the big one. Friend, if it's in the Bible, it's a big one. Jesus commissioned us in uh, Matthew chapter 28 to go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy, and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And Lord, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. It doesn't say teach them to observe just the big things, the little things you can throw out the window. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us unto glory and virtue. Look, if it was non-essential, then why did God bother to put it in His Word in the first place? They're all essential. Now, not all doctrines are essential to understand for salvation, and I get that, and I think that's what most people are considering in this. But look, if just because it's not essential for salvation doesn't mean it's not essential for my life. Hudson Taylor said there are three great truths. First, that there is a God. Second, that He has spoken to us in the Bible. And then third, that He means what He says. So again, He doesn't have to give 87 verses about a specific topic for us to consider it essential. If it's in the Bible one time, He means it. Now, there are some things He does repeat for emphasis sake, but look, if it's in the Bible one time, we we should take it as from God because it is from God. 
Look, it's all important. So we need to remain committed to doctrinal purity in the big doctrines, what some would consider big doctrines, but also in these other ones as well, like Christians being separate from the world, not living a life that just looks just like a world in order to relate to everybody, in order to fit in with everybody and to not make anybody feel uncomfortable by the way we're living. No, we need to be we need to be separate from the world. Be separate, saith the Lord. I mean, how much more clear could that be? And, and yet we throw that out the window because, well, that's just a matter of preference. Oh, no, it's not. It's in the Bible. Jesus mentioned, or God mentioned it in His Word. He took the time to put it in there. We better take the time to live it out. Separation from the world. What about a believer marrying a non-believer and the forbiddance of that? Well, that's, that's pretty old fashioned. I mean, that's, that's too, that's like 1950s. We're in 2020, pastor, don't you know? The, the thing is, is this is the eternal, unchanging, infallible word of God that is true for all ages. And just because culture doesn't say that it's appropriate to talk about doesn't mean that we should change the message of the word of God. The Bible's teaching on modesty for ladies and for men to look like men. Uh, the Bible's teaching on the LGBTQ, WXYZ lifestyle. Now, again, I don't want to be unkind because, Lord, we, we just talked about our Sunday school class about seeing people as lost. And, and, and looking at them through the eyes of Christ and seeing people who need a Savior, I, I, I understand that, but it, it also doesn't mean that I need to water down the message of the Word of God when it's in there, by the way, multiple times uh, regarding this. And I realize it's going to become less and less popular as time goes on here in America to preach against those things. But look, if it's in the Bible, I can't throw it out as a non-essential. It's not up to me. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a surgeon that's taking the word of God and, and getting a scalpel and cutting that word out or that, that verse out or that topic out because I don't like it because it's not popular. It's not culturally relevant. I can't do that. I like Paul needs to preach the whole counsel of God. That's what I'm called to do. And I'm, I'm called to preach the word to be instant in season and out of season when it's popular, when it's not, when it fits culture, when it doesn't. I need to do so with all long-suffering and all doctrine. I just read that verse before I came in here this morning. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm called to do by God. What about uh, the importance of, of having good godly music in our lives? The Bible speaks about that. A lot of other things we could talk about this, this morning, but for sake of time, look, if it's in the Word of God, it's important. And we need to remain committed to doctrinal purity. Now we need to, it's important for us to have the right stand. But it's also important for us to have the right spirit about that stand. Remember it was Jesus, the Bible says, who was filled with grace and truth. There are some Christians who have all the right stands and, and would say amen to all of these things, but, but when you talk to them, they're obnoxious about it. And they're critical and judgmental. There's a balance of having the right stand, but also having a good spirit about it. And understanding that people need to grow and people are at different stages of their Christian life. 
And not everybody has to be perfect today. And uh, there's a progression of growth. But just because we need to have the right spirit does not mean we compromise the truth. Just because it goes against culture because people don't like it. Well, somebody may say, okay, Romans 14. Christian liberty. The thing is, Christian liberty doesn't mean that we take something that God's Word clearly says we should do and then say, well, it's my liberty to not do it. That's a misuse of Romans 14. That's an abuse of Romans 14, actually. Romans 14 is for things that are very preferential, like whether a church has Sunday school or not. Or the pastor wears a tie as he preaches. Those are preferential things. And, uh, you know, those are things that we can have some discussion about. But there are things that are in the Word of God that are clearly spelled out that we should have no discussion about, that this is where we stand and because it's in His Word. I like what I'll, I'll kind of conclude this thought with uh, a quote by A.W. Tozer. It's a little lengthy, so bear with me on it. But here's what Tozer had to say. He said, we have gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of gray fog that pass for doctrine in churches and expect nothing better. Appropriate for this morning. It was pretty foggy on my way in this morning. From some previously unimpeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky admixture of Scripture, science, and human sentiment that is true to none of its ingredients because each one works to cancel the others out. Little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power is always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need a return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the Word of God that lives and abides forever. And to that I say, Amen, Brother Tozer. We do need to stand stubborn, but we need to smile while we're standing stubborn. Look, a church that is magnifying the Lord is going to be uh, remaining committed to doctrinal purity on the, the big ones and the maybe what people would consider the lesser doctrines. But number three, not only that, we need to resolve to love Christ above all. Your Bible is maybe still open to Revelation if you turn back to chapter 2 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, here's that church at Ephesus again. Under the church of the, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And then he says, Look, I know thy works, I know thy labor, thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. So far, so good. Right, but then we get to number four, verse number four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, 
and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. See, evidently leaving our first love can happen to anyone, even this very strong church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus would would very much be considered by many as the flagship church of that day. They were kind of the example church. They were the ones that a lot of churches, I'm sure, looked to, and, and they had a, you know, a really good web presence in that day. Not that there was uh, internet, but if there was, they would have had a big web presence, and they would have had a lot of followers, and a lot of people looking to them probably would have had conferences and had a lot of people show up to these conferences. And I'm not against having a good web presence and conferences, but this was a church that was a really good, healthy church from what it looked like on the outside. But while they did well to remain committed to doctrinal purity, unfortunately their devotion for Christ had waned. They were kind of going through the motions. And it was just church. And yeah, they were busy and they had ministries and they were doing well to care for the right doctrinal truths, but they had left their first love according to verse 4. Many of us can relate with the song that we sang this morning, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. The last verse of that song says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. All of us from time to time find ourselves, at least I do, in verse number four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. See, we need to love Christ above all. Above ourselves, above our sin. By the way, many problems in the church would be avoided if we just loved Christ more than we love our sin and our rebellion. We need to love Christ above ourselves, and that's hard to do at times because we do naturally love ourselves. We need to love ourselves, or love love the Lord above ourselves. Now here in uh, verse number 5, we're given a threefold prescription for a revival of our love for Christ. How do we kind of get that love back? How do we get back to the point where we are indeed loving Christ above all? First, we need to remember. Verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Remember what it was like to be without Christ? Remember your life before you became a Christian? Remember what Jesus saved you from? Hopefully that will help you to remember and to fall in love with Him again to remember back to what it was like when you were first a Christian, when you the day you became a Christian. Do you remember the joy that uh, overflowed your heart? Remember the joy that followed you in the days to come, that you knew that you were a believer, you knew you were in God's family. Do you remember those days? It would be good for us to remember what it was like. In my relationship with Julie, sometimes we talk about, sometimes we talk about our wedding day. Sometimes we talk about our dating days and, and uh, what it was that brought us together in the first, first place and how God orchestrated all of our coming together. And it causes us to fall in love with each other once again afresh and anew. It's good for you to remember to think back to how God brought you to Himself. 
And so that's why John here, and well, Jesus is saying, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. And so first we need to remember, next we need to repent. Say, Lord, I, I'm sorry for my lack of love for you, my, my waning love. I've, I've left the God I've loved. And, and I want to come back. So to repent, and then we need to return to the first works. Verse 5, remember from, therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. Do the basics. Sometimes when we get out of our alignment with the Lord and our love for Him has waned, it's because we've replaced the basics with other things that cannot truly satisfy. We've taken time from God's Word and we've said, I, 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 don't, I just don't have time for that. I, I'm going through a lot right now in my life. If you're going through a lot in your life right now, all the more reason to get into God's Word. Now, that's not the time to neglect God's Word. That's the time to spend more time in it because you need more wisdom to face what you're facing. Get back to the basics. My wife had a conversation with a lady friend of hers this week and uh, going through a lot of challenges with different things in her life and family and my wife said, you know, I, I, I want to ask this in the right, the right spirit with as much love as I can muster, but, but when was the last time you really read your Bible? She sheepishly said, well, it's been a few weeks. She's like, well, I would encourage you to really read your Bible every day because I just know how important that is. She later said to my wife, thank you for sharing that with me. Thank you for encouraging me to do that. And friend, if you're going through a stressful time, come back to the basics. When was the last time you really spent a good season of time in prayer? Where you've just maybe walked and talked and prayed and talked to the Lord? Or is it just a real quick, as you're walking out the house or praying before a meal? Look, return to the first works. One mark of a church that is magnifying the Lord in that church is that there's a whole bunch of people who love Christ above all. Who love Christ more than they love their own opinion and their own preferences. They love Christ above all. And number four here on the checklist of things uh, to determine whether we are a church that magnifies the Lord is that we rely on the Lord. That we are dependent upon Him. Revelation chapter number 3, I want us to look at this church here, the church of Laodicea in uh, chapter 3, verse number 14. 14, And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, I and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And that's kind of a famous passage there, talking about the church of Laodicea. That's not what I want to focus too much on this morning. I want to focus here on verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing. Then Jesus says, And knowest not thou that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me 
gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness doth not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. See, the church of Laodicea had all they could want as a church. And according to verse number 17, they said that they were in, they were rich, they were increased with goods, and they had need of nothing. We don't need anything. We're good. Now, many churches measure success with the three Bs. Bodies, bucks, and buildings. So long as they have enough bodies, and they have enough bucks, and they have enough buildings, then they're deemed a success in their eyes. Well, this church, the church at Laodicea, no doubt had all three of those bodies. Check, you should see our attendance. It is always growing. Bucks, boy, our offerings have been really up lately, so check on that one. Buildings, yeah, check on that one too. Uh, We just built a new building, a multi-million dollar structure for whatever. Check, we've got the buildings, we've got the properties, we've got the offerings are coming in, the bodies are here. We're a success. We have need of nothing, is what the church of Laodicea said. The problem was, they began to rely on those things. They began to depend on their attendance, their offerings, their property. Psalm 20 and verse number 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. The church at Laodicea, they were trusting in chariots and horses, but they weren't remembering the name of the Lord their God. We better be careful as a church because if we look around, God is blessing our church. And I'm thankful for that, but we cannot rely on any of those things. Our confidence cannot be in those things. Our confidence must remain in the Lord only. I'm thankful for a lot of the resources that are available to our church and the tools that uh, we can use, but we must never get to the point where we're trusting in those tools, in those tips and techniques that we always rely upon the Lord. Church of Laodicea failed to do this and carried on ministry day after day without the power of God. Oh, sure, they had all the external markings of a healthy, successful church, but sadly, they were missing the most important thing. They were missing the power of God. Verse number 20 says, Jesus, here, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he he with me. Jesus, the very one who this church belongs to, had been booted out of the church because they no longer needed him. Because they had arrived, they had need of nothing. Zechariah 4.6 reminds us, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Look, it's not anything we can do. We have to continue to rely on the Lord. Gideon learned that God doesn't need many to accomplish much when he won that battle against the Midianites with only 300 men. And for those who are doing the math, 300 versus over 135,000 men. Not good odds 
They were quite the underdog, but not with God on their side. See, Gideon learned that he couldn't trust in the size of his army. He had to trust in the power of his God. And Cornerstone Baptist Church, we better not get to the place where we think, okay, we have everything we need here. No, we better remember to rely on the Lord only. Gideon learned to do that. The boy who gave his lunch learned that God is able to take a little bit and multiply it to two great and mighty things. The Lord used just 12 men to turn this world entirely upside down. You see, little is much when God is in it. But much is not when God is not in it. And see, Laodicea had much, but God wasn't in it. And God was not pleased, and He was outside the door saying, will somebody please let me into my own church? Uh, They were too busy doing the ministry because they had need of nothing. If we're going to effectively magnify the Lord in our church, we must have a continual reliance on the Lord. Remember what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. Lean not unto your own buildings, unto your own attendance or or offerings, lean not unto those things, but in all thy ways acknowledge Him, and then He shall direct thy paths. Rely on the Lord. Number five, retain unity in the church. Retain unity in the church. Philippians, if you want to just quickly flip over there. Flip to Philippians. I worked on that all week long and nobody laughed. Thank you. Philippians 1.27. I didn't really. I just came up with it. Better not say the things that I just come up with because they're not funny. Okay. Philippians 1.27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. And here it is, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, Paul in this epistle, and we worked our way through it uh, the last half of 2019. I uh, hear on Sunday mornings, he was building a case to address a specific issue that was happening in the church at Philippi. This is a church that Paul deeply loved, cared for, had a tremendous relationship with. But he says in verse 27, look, you need to be uh, with one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you go to chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill ye me my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So he's trying to encourage them as he goes through this letter to be a unit, to have a unity in this church. And then if you go to four, chapter 4 and verse 2, he finally drops the atomic bomb and names names. Say, pastor should never do that. Well, if Paul did, Not that I want to make a habit of it, but he had to from time to time. The Bible does say, mark them which cause division in the church. And that's what he did here in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Stop fighting. You ladies are causing division and you need to knock it off, is basically what he said. That's all in the Greek. You have to kind of look into it. But look, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there was a, if there was one word to describe the church at Corinth, I would, I would say dysfunction. But one of the things that was part of the dysfunction was that there was tremendous division 
in the church. And chapter 1, verse 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. Then verse 11, it says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there be contentions among you. So there was some great division in this church. Unity wasn't a word that this church you could use to describe it. There was a lot of things that they were arguing about. And again, not things that are necessary to argue about. In uh, chapter 11, verse number 18, you don't need to turn there, but he says, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Paul's like, I heard that there was divisions, and I wasn't shocked. <laughs> it wasn't like someone had to give me a whole little list of reasons why there was division. He's like, I partly believe it. I totally, I totally get it. We need to retain unity in the church because when we're divided, we're, we can't stand together. A house divided cannot stand. Think about snowflakes. It snowed uh, just a week and a half ago here. Uh, the, one of the bigger snowstorms in recent memory here in Oklahoma. And uh, felt like Montana for us again. Um, but uh, now it feels like Oklahoma because that's what it does here. It's, it's snowed a couple times since we've been here. But snowflakes by themselves are frail, but if enough of them stick together, they can do tremendous, they can make a tremendous difference. On February 5th, 2018, there was a 20-car pileup on I-35, so just up the road uh, in North, uh, in, in Iowa. And uh, this photo of this accident, this 20-car pileup that took place, all because snow got together and made a difference. Now, this is somewhat of a negative example, I get it. But imagine the positive good that our church could accomplish if we're united for Christ. We're striving together for the faith of the gospel. Imagine what God could use us to do. But if we're divided, uh, one little snowflake doesn't do anything. But a whole bunch of them together can cause and make a great difference. Psalm 130 3 and verse 1, uh, it says, My brethren, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I share this story. In, Phil in the Philippines, deep in the dense rainforest, lives a primitive people known as the Agta Negrito. They are hunter-gatherers who uh, don't wear a lot of clothing. Uh, but several years ago, a missionary family who was working among them set up a croquet game in their front yard. We had a croquet game in our backyard last year, and the Mosleys ended up winning that. That was their first time ever playing croquet, and they won. So, rematch coming up. Well, anyway, before long, several of the Agta Negritos neighbors wanted, uh, curiously gathered to watch this missionary family play croquet. And soon they wanted to join in the fun and play as well. Well, missionaries began to explain the game and gave each of them a mallet and a ball. Well, halfway into the game, one of the natives' croquet balls landed next to another native's croquet ball, so they were touching. All right? So the missionary excitedly went, oh, I forgot to tell you about this rule. This is a great rule. And he explained excitedly one, one of the more aggressive rules. You can put your foot on your ball, right, and smack it hard with the mallet, 
causing your opponent's ball to go far, flying far on the opposite direction. Well, the native understood what he was saying, but he couldn't comprehend why anyone would want to do it. He said, why would I want to knock his ball out of the court? The missionary replied, well, so you're going to be the one to win. I mean, that's not what it's all about. The native shook his head in bewilderment. You see, competition and winning is not important in hunting and gathering societies. People survive not by competing, but by working together. Well, the game continued, but no one followed the missionary's advice. When the first player successfully got through all the wickets, he did not see himself as the victor. For him, the game wasn't over. So he went back and gave aid and advice and encouragement to the other players. Finally, when the last wicket was played by the last player, they all shouted happily, We won! We won! In the local church setting, it's easy to get caught up in politics and personalities. Factions can form over just about any disputable matter. One side's been taken, backbiting and gossip ensues. Instead of working with and for one another, we undermine. But like the hunter gathers, the church can only succeed when all of its members are working together. And a church that magnifies the Lord is going to be united. It's going to have a single purpose and and the same mind and the same spirit. Remember, it was Jesus who prayed in the upper room that they, he said that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So, and then the last one here, number six, reach the lost with the gospel. Acts 1.8, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. A church that is striving to magnify the Lord is a church that is actively doing what it can to reach the lost with the gospel. This type of church has people who are willing to be involved in whatever outreaches, uh, outreach efforts that they can be involved in, whether it means being an intentional witness at work, being an intentional witness at school or in their neighborhood or in their community, or participating in the monthly all-church prayer and outreach opportunities we have here at Cornerstone. Or in praying for our missionaries, whether it be, whether it means giving sacrificially so others can carry the gospel to the regions beyond, or being willing to go yourself to carry the gospel to the regions beyond. Leonard Ravenhill sadly said, today's Christians spend more money on dog food than missions. Ouch. As D.L. Moody walked down a Chicago street one day, he walked up to a man and asked him if he were a Christian. The fellow raised his fist and angrily exclaimed, You mind your own business! Well, D.L. Moody replied, Actually, this is my business. And the man responded, Well, then you must be D.L. Moody. I've heard about you. Are we actively reaching the lost with the gospel? Better question is, are you actively reaching the lost with the gospel? Because everybody's business is many times nobody's business. So if we ask, are we doing it? Maybe. 
The better question is, are you doing it? You and I need to have the mentality that if it's going to be, it's up to me. I need to make it my business like D.L. Moody made it his to reach people with the gospel of Christ. A church that magnifies the Lord is a church that is reaching the lost with the gospel. So, church family, how are we doing as a church? As we went down this checklist, how do you think we are doing? Okay, actually, that's the wrong question. The right question is, how does the Lord think we're doing? Because we can think, oh yeah, we're better than others in this area. But what does the Lord really think about how we're doing in these areas? Do we remember that the church belongs to the Lord Jesus and are we acting like it belongs to Him? You know, if you, if you have something that you own, you treat it differently than if you're borrowing it from somebody. Right? When, when, when you're renting a house and you know, man, I'm going to have to give it back in the same condition. Um, well, some of you who are landlords go, I wish that was the case all the time. <laughs> um, we've rented and we've owned. We prefer owning because we can kind of do what we want with the home. But look, this church isn't ours to do whatever we please. It's the Lord's church. So how are we doing with that? Are we remaining committed to doctrinal purity or do we just kind of blow things off as not very important because they don't fit my lifestyle? Are we resolved to love Christ above all or are there things that have come between us and our love for Him? Are we truly relying upon the Lord or do we think we have everything we need and we have need of nothing? Are we retaining unity here at Cornerstone and are we actively reaching the lost with the gospel of Christ? I hope the answer is yes to all of these. If not, I hope that each of us individually will make some decisions so that the answer will be yes. At the very beginning of the message, I asked the question, have you given place, prominence, or preeminence to Jesus? If you're here this morning and you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've not given Him place, please do that today. Don't wait, don't delay. We've seen this last month or so, uh, different people who weren't expecting to go into eternity, but there they are right now in eternity. It could be you next. could be me next. Are we ready? Prominent. Are you allowing Him to have just a little bit of control over the things that you kind of say, you can have that one, but not this one? Or are you allowing Him to be preeminent in your life, saying, Lord, you can be Lord over everything that I am, all that I have, it's all yours. You own it all. You're the Lord of all. I hope that all of us will make the decision to allow the Lord to be indeed preeminent in our lives. With that, let's pray together today. Lord, thank You for the opportunity to learn what it means to magnify You in our church. And oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that does make you look big in our community and even in our own eyes here at our church. Lord, you are already big, bigger than we can imagine. You're infinitely big, actually. So we can't make you bigger than you are, but Lord, we can make you appear bigger to our community. And I pray, Lord, that that would happen by us applying this message 
not just as a church, but individually. Because, Lord, this church is made up of a whole bunch of individuals. Lord, help us to do what we talked about this morning. 